Welcome to Season 4 of How Not to DM. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best DMs and GMs on this plane of existence. First, let's start with a quick shout out to my patrons. Thank you, Callum, RPG Match, JB, Matt from Dungeon Glitch, The Mighty Moose, and Metalocalypse for your awesome continued support of How Not to DM. I couldn't do this show without you. Remember, I'm a proud supporter of Diversity Saves, so a percentage of the money I get from Patreon supporters or from ads goes to them. Diversity Saves is a TTRPG charity which donates money to diverse and up-and-coming creators working on their first projects. It's a great cause and I'm really excited to see what awesome stuff people create with the support that they bring. Ah, can I just say, it feels good to be back in the chair for Season 4. Thank you all for being patient for this longer than usual break I took, but we took a little bit to figure out our new family dynamics and get comfortable before I wanted to jump back in. So thanks again, I really appreciate it. And without further ado, let's jump into what's going to be an awesome Season 4 of How Not to DM. For the very first episode of Season 4, I've got my good friend Ned from Improv Tabletop on as our guest. Ned has been running Improv Tabletop for a few years now. It's a show that started out as mostly playing Fate mini one-shots and has evolved into playing some Avatar Legends games and now Blades in the Dark with plans to go back to its roots with some more Fate campaigns and other fun things. Ned has been working on this podcast for a while with a lot of his friends who were with him in college doing improv together, so the show is very heavily improv-focused, but also tells really interesting, complex, and narratively satisfying stories. Enjoy! So the interesting thing about my experience is I'd been in the hobby for about a decade before I actually played an officially published RPG, and it wasn't until about a year after that that I actually played D&D proper, because it was the sophomore year of high school that I started playing. I had a bunch of friends in the theater program in my high school who were starting to get into it, and they invited me to come along, and I, as I'm sure is the case with many, was like, okay, I'm a nerd, but that's a bridge too far. But eventually they broke me down. And so my very first RPG character was basically like the loosest pastiche of Link from Legend of Zelda that I could figure out how to make with the system. We played a game called Roses and Ramparts, which had been created by my friend Neil's dad. And in retrospect, the system had a lot of similarities to Savage Worlds, using different dice for individual skills, having hindrances, that kind of stuff. And that was the game that we played all throughout high school and kind of into my early college years. I played a lot with another group of friends. My friend Josh was my longest running GM after that point. Then in the years after high school and kind of in early college, the train kind of fell off because a lot of the friends that I was playing with, we ended up going kind of our separate ways. But then later on, I did get back in touch with that friend Josh, who'd been my primary GM and discovered that he'd been working on his own homebrew system that he called Silver Star, and it took elements from Roses and Ramparts and mixed in some stuff from Pathfinder 1st Edition. He actually ran a lot of Pathfinder Adventures using that system, and the unfortunate thing there was we could just never manage to get a consistent group together to keep playing, and then he eventually moved away. And so it was pretty light from there on, but then in comes my friend Thomas Brower, who, if you've listened to iCast Fireball, you're very familiar with Thomas Brower. He is the DM over there. And 
the two of us had been in an improv group together for a little over a year, I think, at this point. And one of the new members of the improv group, our friend John, came up to us after class one day and was like, hey, you two play Dungeons and Dragons, right? And we had mentioned kind of on and off a few times during our time in the group that we'd played role-playing games in the past. And we kind of both looked at each other and we were like, yeah, but I think we were both thinking in our heads. Thomas is like, okay, I don't play Dungeons and Dragons specifically. I play Pathfinder. I'm thinking, well, I play all these other random games my friends have made. But we were like, okay, yeah, we, we've played before. And he's like, I've been watching Stranger Things and it looks so fun. You got to teach me how to play. We got together a little group. Thomas was like, you know, I'll pull out my old Pathfinder books that I haven't touched in years. And we'll do a little one-shot and see how it goes. We played through Hollow's Last Hope, a nice classic Pathfinder First Edition introductory module. And of course, from there, we decided to start a full campaign with it. We played Rise of the Rune Lords, which is a wonderful Pathfinder adventure. And that was what got me fully hooked. I was playing this system that had actually been playtested extensively and had years of design experience behind it, which, you know, <laughs> all the love to my friends who were making their own systems. It makes a little bit of a difference when it's made by a professional. And so, yeah, that was how I got back into the hobby in full force. And then about a year later, Thomas and I decided we wanted to start trying out D&D 5e. He'd been listening to Critical Role for a while. He introduced me to Sneak Attack, a nice cult favorite podcast. I mean, you've had members of Sneak Attack on your show. We were very fortunate to have Josh as a guest on a few episodes of iCast Fireball. And so that was essentially how I learned to play D&D 5e was from sneak attack which i feel very happy to say yeah this is like off script but as far as like how different playing a totally homebrewed like just one family is playing this game right now game versus like you said pathfinder which had been extensively play tested and is based on dnd 3.5 which had also been extensively play tested you know what mm -hmm. like contrast those two for me you know what was the experience like it's a lot of refinement is the main thing. Playing those homebrewed games, you have to kind of take them as they are and recognize that you're going to run into some interesting bugs and glitches along the way. And the lack of refinement, you know, it allowed us to kind of get loosey-goosey with the system. Uh, the first major character that I put a lot of dedication into after my random Link character was a guy who summoned Cthulhu Mythos monsters and had them fight in battle for him. So you could get pretty loosey-goosey with a system like that. But seeing just the amount of polish, the refinement, the little bits of seasoning, the salt and pepper that they put on top of everything, it was like, okay, yes, this is comprehensive. This is something that I feel like I can develop some mastery over. Mastery, that's a good way to put it, yeah. Having written a handful of like really small games, I can definitely sympathize, I guess, with that. Like, even when I'm playing my own game, I'm like, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't really think about mm -hmm. because you just can't until you're playtesting and then you realize. So, yeah, that's interesting. You played a bunch. Once you got into college, you started playing Pathfinder and that's where you met Thomas. How did you get into running games yourself? And what was your first game running experience like? Yeah, my first experience does go back to high school, pre-Pathfinder and pre-D&D. I was never the main GM at that point. Me and my friends would occasionally switch off, but it was mostly my friend Josh who covered most of it. But occasionally I would bring in a game that was usually kind of a mashup of some various classical literature stories. I think the first one that I ran 
was a combination of a couple Edgar Allan Poe short stories. It was it started out as The Gold Bug and then morphed into The Cask of Amontillado. Another one that I ran a couple times started out as H.P. Lovecraft's The Creature in the Cave and then morphed into The Most Dangerous Game. The longest one that I ran, it was we played it in the back of a bus on a trip with our marching band over the course of a few days. And it like started out as Moby Dick <laughs> and then turned into 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Sea. Moriarty was there, I think. It was the Wild West back in those days, essentially. I was going to say, it sounds a lot like a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So Yeah. So we've actually, on Improv Tabletop, we've done a campaign inspired by the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And I didn't realize until after I'd finished editing that campaign how much of a connection I actually had with that in my GMing history. Because my friend Joshua have mentioned a few times, he introduced me to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen around that time. And I guess my brain just took it and ran with it. It is a fun concept. My college roommate loved that movie, and it was like on at least once a week when I'd come home from class or whatever. <laughs> Not a great movie, but you know, you love what you love. That you do, especially when you're young and impressionable. Yeah, also in those early days, there would be a lot of moments where like, we don't have our character sheets in front of us, but it's like, okay, we've got a bunch of D6s, or we have one D20, so we'll just kind of make something up on the fly. And very few of those particular experiences are ones that I remember per se, but do you remember like just being in the park after midnight on top of the jungle gym with my friends, just having fun? But then the point where I decided that I wanted to get into GMing like as my main thing was while we were doing Rise of the Rune Lords, that campaign that started it all. If you've played Rise of the Rune Lords before, you might be familiar with the word misgivings. I don't want to give any spoilers away for people who haven't played the campaign, but it's a super cool part of the campaign where you're in this house and there's all this weird, creepy stuff going on. And I'm going through this as a player and thinking, holy cow, there's so much mystery and intrigue here. I want to be the one who is providing this experience for my players, in part because I was just so enamored with the experience, but also in part because I was like, okay, Thomas knows a lot of stuff that I don't. I want to be the one who knows all the crazy, weird stuff that's going on here. Not too long after that, we wrapped up that Pathfinder group. Some people had to move, et cetera, et cetera. And that was when I decided I would buy the 5e core rulebooks and we would transition that group over to D&D 5e. And so with that group, I was running Lost Mine of Fandelver. And a little bit before we started that group, actually, because we were still waiting to wrap up the Pathfinder campaign, I put together another group of people from our improv troupe and started running them through Curse of Strahd. So my very first thing that I ever DM'd in D&D 5e was the Death House encounter from Curse of Strahd, which is such a great campaign. I've actually run it twice all the way through at this point and would run it again wholeheartedly. Since that point, I have been running, because like I started with those two groups running concurrently, and for the past five years or so, I've been running continuously anywhere from two to four weekly campaigns at any given time, which has been kind of crazy, a little overwhelming at times eventually has become whittled down to just one home group as I've been focusing more time on the podcast that I'm part of. But we decided we'd test out a few different ones. We tested out Call of Cthulhu. We tested out Blades in the Dark, Deadlands. And currently we've settled on Pathfinder for Savage Worlds and we're running through Rise of the Rune Lords, that same campaign that Thomas ran for me back in the day. I am now running for my friends and it's been a ton of fun. You probably have run more games in like one year's span than I have total <laughs> if you're running four games a week. Yeah, it's not something I would recommend to anybody by any means, but it was quite an intense baptism by fire, as it were. With all of this experience under your belt, then you surely have some good answers to the next question, which is, 
as far as some of the worst mistakes you feel like you've made, whether specific instances or like habits or, you know, that kind of thing, what are some of the big blunders you feel like you've made behind the screen and what we could learn from them? This kind of goes back into my improv sort of origins. The moments that I certainly regret the most are the times when I essentially said no to my players when they came up with a really cool idea but I wasn't confident enough as a GM to feel like I could make good on what they were wanting to do. So I guess I'll do one private example and then one public example from the show. The private example is during the second campaign that I was running for one of my groups, this was my attempt to do a big epic Matt Mercer style campaign. I was running Ghost of Saltmarsh and the way that that campaign is structured, you have all of these awesome modules that you have to kind of find your own way to stitch together. And so that was also my first experience trying to do any significant amount of homebrew to kind of make all these pieces fit together. One of the encounters that I had was a murder mystery that was going to take place in this house where like everybody from the town council was going to be there. Somebody was going to get murdered. The person who was going to get murdered, I was going to have retreat to a different part of the house at some point so that he could get murdered off screen and I would be able to have my story move forward as necessary. But turns out my players just really, really wanted to talk to this guy when I was trying to get him out of the scene so that he could die off screen. And I was like, okay, he really doesn't want to talk to you. But one of my players, Evan, actually from Improv Tabletop, he's like, okay, but just one more time, I'm going to try. And so I'm like, okay, fine. He doesn't want to talk to you, but make a persuasion check. And Evan rolled a nat 20, of course. Of course. And I, in my moment of panic, was like, uh, uh well, rules is written in D&D 5e, a nat 20 doesn't mean you automatically succeed. And the DC was 30 because that's nearly impossible because you don't want to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. And I have since spoken to Evan about that. And he was like, no, nah, don't worry about it. You're just doing your thing. And it led to this cool story beat. But that is an example of the kind of moment that I really regret where it's like I wasn't able to reward my player for this cool idea that they had in the moment. And so the public example I'll offer along with that is one of the campaigns we did for Improv Tabletop, Dumbledore's Delinquents. The whole premise of this campaign being we are the people who are sort of behind the scenes at Hogwarts while Harry is off in the middle of the Triwizard Tournament being a big attention hog and everything, what are these people doing behind the scene? Dumbledore has essentially hired this group of three misfits to try and figure out who's going to attempt to assassinate Harry Potter. There were certain moments along that campaign where I felt so strongly that I needed to stick to the canon of Harry Potter for some reason that I shut down these opportunities that were my characters were presenting because I wanted to be like, well, no, Mad-Eye Moody can't die or you can't figure out who he is right now because later in the story, there has to be the whole thing in the trunk, blah, blah, blah. And in retrospect, I've been thinking about that and I actually do at some point want to return to that idea. I want to do a full Dumbledore's Delinquents thing where we start back at the beginning of book one And we don't care about keeping it canon. We just like send these chaos goblins into the story. They do whatever the heck they want. If they kill McGonagall in book one, I just have to figure out how the rest of the book series goes now that McGonagall isn't there. Just really dissect the thing with a cannonball, essentially. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's something we'll do in the future. Maybe not. But the moral of the story here is I want the people who are listening to this to not feel regrets about shutting down the cool ideas that their friends present to them. If you maybe don't feel confident as a GM in that moment that you'll be able to make good on that, 
you might be able to do it better than you expect. We all have more improv ability in us than we often think at first. Yeah, I like that advice. Whenever I think about all of the mistakes I've made, I always think like, well, I could have done this and this and this and this. But, you know, partly that comes from just experience and doing it over and over again and becoming more flexible and more able to roll with the punches that your players are throwing, right? And I'm sure it was probably something similar in your case, right? Like you were trying to set up the specific plot and there's a dozen different ways you could resolve that and still make your story happen. But, you know, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, So that's exactly what this is all about. I love that lesson. That's a good one. So on the flip side of that, then, what are some of your favorite memories of really fun stuff that has happened at your table? Um, really good moments, highlights, that kind of thing. I find that the moments that end up being the most meaningful and the most memorable are those moments when your players latch onto something that you never expected they would latch onto. I think it's important when those moments happen that you don't get frustrated, be like, why are you so obsessed with this random goblin? It's just a goblin. Like, don't get obsessed with the goblin, but because your players have shown their investment in that random thing, that's all the more reason to start really leaning into it and making it a special part of the campaign. Like, so, so many examples in campaigns, like the goblin example, when I was playing through Rise of the Rune Lords with Thomas, I tied up a goblin, took him hostage so I could ask him questions, and eventually decided, you know what, you're my friend now. And how many of us have had similar experiences? I think the one that sticks out in my mind the most is when I was doing Descent into Avernus with a bunch of my friends who are now on Improv Tabletop. There's this encounter you can have when you finally get down into Avernus where the party runs into this little halfling guy who's about to sell his soul to an imp. And I portrayed this halfling as like the most pathetic little dude that I possibly could. And they like discovered that his wife had been cheating on him this entire time and he didn't even realize it. I guess another fun bit of advice for you as GMs out there is if you want to make your players really love an NPC, make them super pathetic. Make the players feel like they're helping this person by befriending them. That's something I've seen a lot in my own experience and something that I have also heard Caldwell Tanner from Not Another D&D Podcast. His wording, I think, was you got to figure out which brand of pathetic your NPC is. And that's what's going to make them memorable. What's going to make your players really love them. Uh, also great advice. Everyone loves a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Everyone loves a project. They want to help that person solve other problems. And then uh, an even better thing to do is to make them a villain at the end, right? Like mm-hmm. they're pathetic, but just to reel you in and then they double cross you. They love exactly. that. Players love that. They don't love it, but I love it. <laughs> this is kind of a, an interesting question because you played so many different games and in so many different groups and stuff. But do you have any homebrew rules or practices you like to use at your table to make games more fun, engaging, etc.? One of the big things that I've come to recently as I've been testing a bunch of different systems is I find myself gravitating a lot towards systems that have mechanics built into the system to give players some narrative control over the story. So like Mm -hmm. in Blades in the Dark, if you roll poorly, you can always push yourself or you can take a devil's bargain to get another die that you can add to your dice pool. In Fate that we use for Improv Tabletop, you start out with Fate points. And if you ever don't like your roll, you can spend one of those Fate points to re-roll it or add plus two to your result. The game that we're currently playing in my home group, Savage Worlds, they have this system, uh, this sort of meta currency called Bennies. And they're these tokens that you can spend to do a whole bunch of things. You can re-roll a skill check. You can re-roll damage. You can use them to soak incoming damage so you don't actually end up getting wounded by the attack. 
that is something that I'm honestly thinking of just basically porting over directly into other systems that I run. Because it's kind of hard after you're playing these games, when you've tasted what it's like to be able to have this resource that allows you in certain points to maybe move the story a bit more in your direction, it's kind of hard going back to a system where the dice can just straight up say no to you and you can't do anything about it. Giving your players opportunities to kind of flex around with the story. And another thing that I will often do is if a player comes to me and says, I know this isn't rules as written, but can I at least try it? Then sometimes I'll just roll a die. And based on if that result is high enough, I'll say either, no, you can't do it this time. Or yeah, you can go ahead and do that because sometimes those moments lead to really cool things. Even though it's not rules as written per se, I find that kind of taking the burden off of me as the referee and leaving it up to fate makes it a little easier to stomach the idea that sometimes you can do this cool thing, but other times you can't. Just a fun little thing that I like to do every so often. Yeah, I'm sure you could make that Benny kind of work for whatever system you're playing in. Yeah. Yeah, it is funny to hear all of the devil's bargains that your uh, Blades in the Dark players uh, try to get, though, every session. It feels like it just keeps on stacking up and up and up, and I have no idea where it's going to go. Anyway. Yeah, it's lots (laughs) of fun. It's a fun mechanic. Yeah, that's another fun thing that you'll pick up by running either Powered by the Apocalypse systems or Forge in the Dark systems is the idea that failure doesn't necessarily have to mean that whatever you tried to do just doesn't happen. Sometimes it means that you do what you set out to do, but now there's a bigger problem you have to face. So being able to bring more narrative into how the dice resolve things. On Quickfire Chaos, Ned and I are going with the tried and true rolling D100s on some random tables from the internet to create a fun and brand new scenario to roleplay together. Go ahead and roll me a D100 and let's see what you need me to fetch. That is a 14. An awakened cat that can talk for some reason. I'm going to let you figure out what that means. Nice. Next is your NPC voice. This is how they sound. I'm not going to force you to do a specific accent, but kind of how we might hear them. All right. 80. Never or barely closes their mouth. Nice. (laughs) Okay. Uh, It's going to be fun. All right. Uh, NPC job. So where we might find them, what they do, how they might be dressed. That is a seven. Blacksmith. Pretty straightforward. And lastly, a trait, some kind of personality trait that'll give you an idea about how they might interact with us. 40. Hedonistic pursuit or of or devotion to pleasures of the senses. Again, I'll let you fill it in however you want. So you get to decide where we are. Set the scene for me. I will be playing as it is Avatar. I will play a waterbender because I feel like they can move around in a few of the different places you might be. Anyway, I'll be a waterbender, typical waterbender clothes. You fill in the rest. All right, let's jump in. All right. So uh, let's say that you are the person who replenishes my quenching barrels. I am a blacksmith. I need water to be able to quench my stuff after it's finished. You come in. It's just a, a normal day on the job, I suppose. Yeah. Got my wagon full of barrels, probably pulled by my ostrich horse or <laughs> whatever they are. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, we roll on up and I enter the shop. 
you enter and I'm just ping, 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 just banging on something in the background, but a lot more aggressively than you usually see me pounding away at the anvil. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I got your water for you. Uh, oh boy, uh, you're you're really giving it to that that piece of metal there. Oh, well, yeah. You see, something terrible has happened. You notice that dear sweet Lord Shukles ain't in here right now. He done got up, ran out of the place. Some weird spirit shenanigans going on here. Suddenly, my sweet little kitty Shukles started speaking to me in a human voice, then got up and ran right out the door over there. And I'm a little bit peeved about it. Bang, 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 bang. Oh, that, that's terrible! I'm gonna like kind of like squat down a little bit and go pss, 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 and, and see if I can get see if I can get the cat to show up. See if I see any sign of it. Uh, well, you see now here's the problem. You know, I I admire your pluck. The cat ain't in here right now, but but you are an enterprising young individual. I think perhaps we might be able to to merge a forger here. Now, how's about if you go out and find my cat for me? Shouldn't be too hard. Like I said, Lord Shukles is speaking with a human voice right now. Not many cats are speaking with human uh, voices out there. Well, uh, what did what did the Lord say before before he left? Well, you see, Lord Shukles is feeling maybe a little bit uh, under understimulated because, you know, I am all about finding, you know, the finest things that there are to offer in this world, the the tastiest dishes from the Fire Nation Islands, the finest uh, silks and clothing from the Southern Water Tribe. And Lord Shukles looked up right at me and said, well, you know, where's my suit that I can wear to the Grand Gala? Where's my tin of caviar? You've just been feeding me the scraps off what you've been eating. I'm going to go live the good life for myself. And then boom, he up and ran out on me this is uh worse than i thought uh well i i feel like there's a lesson to be learned here but first of all uh let's find uh, lord shukles uh who is the richest person in town oh well that would obviously be lord who young up in the middle circle he has oh, all kinds no. yeah he's, he's he's in the landowning business so he's a terrible individual but he does have a lot of resources and, you know, maybe, just maybe, maybe he might be able to get you in touch with some people who can maybe help you locate my cat. I got to stay here, keep doing all my smithing stuff because I got a big order to fulfill for the uh, anti-corruption task force in just a moment here. But, hey, if you, you go out and find Lord Shukles, I got, uh, and I like reach into some random crate and I pull out a very nice arm bracer that's got jade inlaid into it. Very fine mm. silver filigree. Hey, I could give you this right here with quite a bit, right? Yeah, that's a very fine piece. Uh, I I suppose it's time for me to go see if I can get in touch with um, Lord Hu Wei Young. I've heard terrible things about him, so I'm not looking forward to this, but that bracer is hard to pass up. Also, Lord Shugles, I gotta go find him. Yeah, you know, you shouldn't be looking forward to it. He truly is just the worst, an absolute garbage human being. But, you know, sometimes you got to deal with garbage human beings in the line of an adventurer. That's just life, you know. Now, how about you go out there, get it done. I need to let out some rage and pull out a hammer. Continues just bang, bang, sparks shooting all over the place. Please do. Uh, I'm going to turn and, and head to my card and, and kind of rubbing my chin say, well, I, I, maybe he's he's gone through some kind of redemption arc. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> oh, perfect. All right. I love it. I love the tie-ins with your actual game, too. Anybody who's listening to uh, the latest campaign will we'll get those jokes. Oh, uh, so. yeah. <laughs> it's a fun world. It is fun. I bought the book in the spring sometime and have been slowly picking my way through it, and it's been a lot of fun. I love how everything to play is all in one book, number one. That's sweet. Number two, like the first, I don't know, third of the book is lore. Like It's so dense, and there's so much there, and it's very flavorful. 
super, super fun. All right. So the show that you run anyway is called Improv Tabletop or MTAB. Where did the idea come for the show? What was the genesis of it? And how is it going right now? The sort of initial spark behind this was around the time I was getting close to graduating college, uh, the two things that I just enjoyed doing the most were playing tabletop role-playing games. Like I said, this was around the time that we were playing Pathfinder, getting really, really heavily back into the hobby. And also, I had been studying improv pretty intensively for the past eight semesters. We had a phenomenal instructor who had spent a lot of time studying, read a whole bunch of different books, just like learned as much improv theory as he could so that he could pass it on to us. And I was listening to a ton of podcasts in both of those genres at the time. Uh, I've already mentioned Sneak Attack on the RPG side. I was also listening to like uh, Hello from the Magic Tavern. If our listeners haven't heard of that one, it's great. Some people from the IO Theater in Chicago, also very well-trained improvisers. The premise is this guy fell through a dimensional rift behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical, fantastical land of Foon. And now he does an interview podcast where he talks to all the crazy people who show up at this magic tavern. Definitely go give that one a check if you haven't already. I will. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I was listening to like podcasts in both of these genres, and I kind of had this thought to myself, well, like all tabletop RPGs, when you're playing that, you are improvising. They all very heavily involve improv. But where's the RPG podcast that is all improv, like 100% improv? Nobody's prepared characters beforehand. Not even the GM knows what's going to happen. They haven't prepared a story or anything. Where is the one where they do make up absolutely everything on the spot? And I looked around and I found a couple podcasts where it was like, okay, this is mostly improv, but they roll dice occasionally. And this one kind of says that they're improv, but you can tell that the GM has actually prepared stuff ahead of time. And so I was like, I don't think this podcast does exist yet. So I decided that would be the podcast I would make. And as I've been doing the podcast, I feel like the mission of Improv Tabletop if I can be so heady as to say that my dumb make em ups podcast has a mission, it's kind of like three different sort of things that we like to focus on. The first being we want to make a podcast, well, an RPG actual play podcast that captures the same sort of magical feeling that you experience at a good improv show. And I do make the distinction at a good improv show because I readily acknowledge that there's a lot of bad improv out there. I've done some of it. <laughs> That's why I got together a cast of people that I have done improv with, people who I know have taken the time, they've hit the books, they've studied what it takes to do good improv. And so that's kind of the main aspect is make a truly improvised RPG show. The second part of my motivation, and I think this is the most important one, is I want to have this podcast be a way to sort of lower the barrier of entry into the hobby for new people who are just getting into it. You hear about D&D when you're watching Stranger Things, like our friend John did, and then you look at the rulebook and you're like, that's a textbook. I don't want to learn how to play this game. That's intimidating. But if you can listen to an episode of Improv Tabletop, it's like, hey, we literally sat down with nothing and we had an amazing time just telling the story and playing this game together. It's super easy to play these games if you approach them in the right way. And then maybe people will look at that and say, okay, I've been able to play this really simple game, but over here, Monster of the Week looks really interesting or Scum and Villainy looks really interesting. I learned how to play Fate. Maybe I can learn how to play one of these games as well. And that kind of brings us into the third aspect, which is I want to introduce people to games that aren't D&D. 
I will say right up front, D&D is a good game. I really enjoy D&D. I've played countless hours of D&D. I'm in a D&D podcast, but I think it's partially my upbringing outside of D&D that makes me want to help other people realize that, you know, it's a good game, but it's not the only good game. I personally believe that practically anybody, at least the majority of people, I think, if you take the time to look at the landscape and see what's out there, you'll probably end up finding a game that you like more than you like D&D. That's just my Mm. personal opinion. I haven't done any studies on that or anything. (laughs) Where's your research? It's all in my brain. It's all in my heart. It makes sense there for sure. So that's kind of the main missions. I want to be a truly improvised show. I want to lower the barrier of entry into the hobby and introduce people to a bunch of other really fun, cool games that I think they might enjoy. Yeah, your show is unique in more than just the way that kind of researched and decided to start it. But I think that's an important part of it. I don't know of any shows that are full improv like yours. I also don't know of any shows that started off playing one system, but like doing lots of different little stories in one system. Because there's lots of shows out there who play one system in one game. There's lots of shows out there who play lots of different systems and just do a one shot. But yours is like the between of those two which was fun. It was also cool to see like a lot of the fake games were just kind of like suggestions from people in your discord or, you know, on Twitter or or whatever Uh, you would just mash up these two categories that a lot of people wouldn't think to mash up. And then you've got a game and you've got all sorts of funny touchstones and references you all can make to kind of help feed the improv. But yeah, a very unique and fun show. You also wrote a lot of the music for the first few games yourself. That's pretty cool. I don't think a lot of people would have decided to run a show, edit a show, market a show, and do all the music for the show as well, but you did. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a reason why you don't do all the music anymore. But um, Exactly, yeah, exactly. That, that was really fun too. <laughs> so the idea for like doing the same system, but lots of different ideas, like how did you get the idea to let people suggest what to play and how did that kind of work for you? I know there were a few where you weren't super familiar, like for instance, Transformers, you were kind of like, I don't know a lot about this, but we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. The structure of our show, I think is kind of unique among actual play shows in that the format, the basis of our show is much more rooted in the traditions of improv than it is in the traditions of RPG actual plays. Like when I say I want to capture the feeling of being at a good improv show, I think back to the improv shows that I was in. You have a large cast, and with all these different people, you're able to rotate through them and put them together in various configurations where you'll play a dozen or so games during the course of an improv show, and you'll have different people up there, usually maybe three or four people at a time. And that helps to bring a bunch of different perspectives and ideas and viewpoints into these different games. And so At one point, you're watching them play director, which is a show where they start performing, and then you have one person who's the director and says, cut, keep doing the same story, but now it's film noir. Okay, cut, keep doing it, but now it's Bollywood, that kind of thing. And then later on in the show, you've got a third grade throwdown, which is you've got two players who, it's a guessing game where they're trying to figure out the insults that the audience has predetermined. It's a lot of variety you experience in an improv show with a really diverse, fun cast that brings in different perspectives. And part of what's most engaging to me about being at a live improv show is the audience input. We would do it in a couple different ways for like for certain games, we would go into the audience before the show began and we'd walk up to somebody and be like, okay, give me a film genre. And then we might use this in one of our scenes later on. Or sometimes we'd get up there and right before the scene started, we'd be like, 
okay, I need a suggestion. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say lunchroom? The audience shouts something out. We grab the first thing we hear. And that is the idea that forms the basis of the scene that we're about to perform. With that basis, that is kind of how we formed the structure of improv tabletop in a way that is pretty fun and unique compared to a lot of other shows out there, I think. Yeah, it is definitely very improv. There's a local comedy sports near where I live. And so I've been to a couple shows there and I've seen them perform elsewhere around here. Definitely more of that influence I can see in your show for sure. So you've recently kind of switched focus to playing Avatar Legends, and then now you're playing Blades in the Dark with a little smattering of Avatar Legends in there for other reasons that if people want to know, they can listen to your show. But how did you decide to make that switch to playing one story, one system for, I think it was like 30 or 40 episodes or so, and then your current Blades in the Dark game? You know, like I mentioned, part of the reason why we do Improv Tabletop is because I want to introduce people to other shows. I think unconsciously when I was coming up with the idea, part of my reasoning for wanting to do it was my own desperation to finally convince my friends to let me run a game that wasn't D&D. I have all these rule books that have been sitting on my shelf for a long time. I'm like, hey, are you interested in playing? You know, I've got Savage Worlds over here. I think it's really cool. And they're like, okay, but is it D&D? I'm like, well, no, it's not D&D. I'm like, okay, well, thanks, but no thanks, essentially. That was unconsciously, I think, part of the reason why I started the show. But with Avatar Legends specifically, that was an interesting opportunity for us because I have been wanting to do an RPG campaign set in the world of Avatar The Last Airbender for years. It's been my favorite TV show ever since I first saw it back in the day. I have a lot of deep affection for this world and the lore and how they've crafted it so well. I had in the back of my mind ideas for like, okay, there's this homebrew thing that somebody put out on DMs Guild where you can do like Avatar stuff using D&D 5e. Maybe I'll try and do that someday. Right. Maybe I'll try and do with Improv Tabletop an Avatar-themed fate campaign. But then, lo and behold, Magpie Games announces that they are releasing the officially licensed Avatar Legends role-playing game. And I flipped my lid. I was so excited. As soon as I could, downloaded the quick start. I said to my friends, okay, I'm not going to ask you if you want to play this game. This week, we're playing this game. We're testing out this game. From there, especially since it was such a new system at the time, we released our first one shot while the Kickstarter was still live. And we got a ton of traffic from that. That was when we saw our first like major, major spike in listenership. And so we owe a lot to Avatar Legends. Then kind of piggybacking off of that, leading into Blades in the Dark, I discovered Blades in the Dark and really, really wanted to play it. And my friend Thomas Ryan, who's currently in our Blades in the Dark campaign, also really, really wanted to play this game. So I figured that could be a good opportunity for us to get a chance to actually play this, was to make it part of the podcast. It's been really cool exploring these new systems, especially because they can be very well improvised, especially like the way that they encourage a DM to set up a one-shot or a campaign. It's very collaborative. It's very focused on improv. Uh And in Blades in the Dark, they actively encourage you not to plan too far ahead, to just kind of let things play out as they play out. And I've really enjoyed getting the opportunity to do these longer format systems on Improv Tabletop, the podcast. But at the same time, they don't capture the feel of an improv show as much as the Fate campaigns do. After we finish Blades in the Dow Fate, our current campaign, we're probably going to go back to focusing on the fake campaigns. There's going to be some logistical stuff that we're going to have to figure out with that. But 
They're fun games. Absolutely love them. I feel like the fake campaigns, the way that we've structured those is something that is the most meaningfully unique thing that we're bringing to the podcasting sphere at this point. And I want to lean into that a bit more. Yeah, I I think there's definitely a lot of merit to what you're doing now, but I could see why you'd want to kind of get back to your roots at the same time. When you switched to these longer form games, did you find that you had to do just like a little bit more kind of prep work to make sure that there was a cohesive narrative? Or is it still just shooting from the hip all the time? It's been a little bit different between the two campaigns. With Avatar Legends, I allowed myself a bit more preparation ahead of time. And this largely stemmed from my love of the setting and my desire to do good by all the other Avatar fans out there. I wanted to present something that would feel like it was part of the Avatarverse. I did put in more time ahead of time to do quite a bit of research and to stat out some major NPCs and to put together some plot hooks that I felt like could move the story in interesting directions. I feel like I planned maybe a little bit too much for that one, which is why with Blades in the Dark, I made sure that I really limited the amount of preparation I could do beforehand. And I actually have a segment of our talkback show that I, we usually make that exclusive for our patrons on Patreon. I released just a segment to the main feed talking about how much I prepare beforehand for Blades in the Dark as kind of a way to show other GMs a bit of my process if they want to start getting into it. And I really, really held back on the amount of preparation I did beforehand. It was like, here's the factions. Here's a few potential plot hooks. Here's some name generators, some rolling tables, and that's pretty much it. And so Mm. as soon as we hit record on the first episode of our Blades in the Dark campaign, I stopped doing preparation beforehand and everything after that has been off the cuff. But I always feel a little bit lame when we're recording these. It's like, hey, welcome to ImpTab Avatar Blades in the Dao Fei, the Blades in the Dark actual play where we make up almost everything on the spot. It feels a lot better to me to be able to say confidently 100%, yes, we do make up 100% everything on the spot because we are improv tabletop. And that's part of why I want to move back to the fake campaigns as well. It's really fun to improvise within these more structured systems. If you're the kind of GM who likes to have a good blend of preparation beforehand and being able to play off the cuff, I think these are really good systems. I think they're really going to speak to you. Yeah, I feel like most GMs I know, once they get to a certain point, it becomes that, right? It's a mix of a little bit of prep, but also we're just going to see where it goes because I just want to make sure that I'm telling the story the players are interested in playing through. So I see why so many people would enjoy playing that way. There are a lot of systems that you can improvise in. Like if you play D&D 5e, a lot of DMs have done completely improvised stuff in D&D. I've improvised entire campaign, well, entire not campaigns, but entire sessions in D&D 5e. And so while you can improvise in pretty much any system, if you know it well enough, there are systems that I think are just better suited to improv. The reason why we gravitate towards fate specifically is part of playing in the avatar verse that is kind of restrictive is because there is such an established canon that you have to be kind of beholden to, and that can limit some of your creative opportunities. But in a game like fate, it really does support absolutely anything that you want to do, especially fate accelerated. So that is like, if you're looking for something that you know that you can just play the game and not have to worry about if the mechanics of the game are going to get in the way of your creativity, that's the kind of game to lean toward, I would say. True, especially as D&D is so combat focused as far as like the way the rules are written and the way your characters are built and that kind of thing. 
being able to improv at all also means like leaning a lot upon just random stat blocks you can find because it's almost impossible to create a whole homebrew monster from whole cloth in the middle of a game, right? You're probably yeah. going to Google something. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. I'm sure there's someone out there, though, who has taken the Magpie rules, the Avatar Legends rules, and just created their own Avatar worlds because and like created their mm-hmm. own canon, right? Because people are like, I'm going to write everything from the ground up and more power to them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you're right. It is very established canon. And most people who are interested in playing are probably going to be familiar with it and want to engage with it specifically. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, so you're also a player and a part-time host on another show, which you talked about, I Cast Fireball, with some of your friends from college as well. What's it like to be involved in these two different projects, and what do you enjoy about both of them? Or what do you enjoy about I Cast Fireball that you don't necessarily get from Improv Tabletop? The first big thing is I'm actually a player in I Cast Fireball, which is a very yep. unique experience for me. There is a very special thing we've got going on with iCast Fireball. Initially, when we were kind of coming up with these podcasts, I wanted to have a sense of what is going to make this podcast special. What are we offering that is unique in some way? And with Improv Tabletop, it was obvious from the beginning. It was like, this is 100% improvised. That's the unique thing we're bringing. But what we've settled on with iCast Fireball that I think is a really powerful combination is we are A, a clean podcast. We try to keep things as family-friendly as possible. B, everybody in our cast has a theater background and a strong investment in storytelling and performance. And C, we have good production because our editor got her degree in theatrical design from college. Ah, it, it makes sense. I didn't know that Mickey had studied that necessarily, but it makes sense. So each of those three individual aspects, like there are other podcasts out there that are clean. There are other podcasts that have good production value. There are other podcasts where everybody has a theater background, but off the top of my head, I'm sure there probably is another out there, but off the top of my head, I can't name another show that has all three of those things together. I think you can really tell I cast fireball is quite polished compared to a lot of shows out there. I would say it's definitely in the top, you know, 25% as far as like production value and the story making sense and all of you being invested in the story. There's a lot of shows out there who are much more loose and it's much more like maybe your Friday, Saturday night game feel instead of like a tight, cohesive narrative. Yeah, I definitely think that you all nailed that, even though maybe it wasn't the intent at the beginning. I cast Fireball, also a really good show. And uh, we'll probably hear from Thomas soon enough here on How Not to DM. So there's a little sneak peek for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All right. What is the future then of Improv Tabletop? You talked about wanting to get back to fake games as part of it, but any concrete plans for specific things you want to do? Like I said, I want to go back to Fate for the main feed because I feel like that's the unique thing we're offering to the space and the thing that it can most benefit from. But I really do want to keep doing ongoing campaigns, some stuff in Avatar, maybe do continue to do some stuff in Blades in the Dark, maybe just try out completely different systems. Like I'd love to do something set in Spire by Rowan Rook and Deckard. I think it'd be really fun taking fake campaigns that we've done previously and expanding on them using other systems. Like I mentioned wanting to return to Dumbledore's Delinquents. We could take Kids on Brooms do a campaign with that. We could take (laughs) Animal Station, our Animal Crossing Western, and play that using Deadlands, for example. (laughs) That would be really good. (laughs) The way that production works, the thing that really grinds my gears about this job is I have so many things that I want to do and just so little time to do all of them. 
So the main feed, I want to keep as polished as I can. I want that to be like a top tier experience for any new listeners coming in. So I think the ongoing campaigns are going to move to the Patreon exclusive feed because I want to do something special for our patrons. Like I kind of had this chip on my shoulder for a while about people who have content locked behind the paywall of their Patreon. I'm like, oh, you're just using that to try and get more people to subscribe to your Patreon. And, you know, maybe they are. And maybe that's, I mean, it's a a viable way to get people to sign up for your Patreon. But now that I've had the Patreon for almost a year at this point, I get much more of a sense of like, these people are really special. I really love these people who have gotten into our Discord and who are talking about the stuff that we're doing. I want to do something special for them. And so that is kind of the main reason that I think logistically just being able to provide something for the patrons that, you know, maybe it's not quite as polished as the stuff on the main feed would be, but it's more opportunities for our patrons to have some time to hang out with us during the week. Yeah, that's a great idea. I have had a hard time wrestling with what to do for my Patreon because I'm a one man show, right? Like how much more time am I going to spend on this content for a few extra bucks a month? Is it really worth it? It's always on the back of my mind and in trying to decide what to do. But I'm glad that you have thought of something that, at least in my opinion, sounds like it'd be really fun for your patrons, myself included, to enjoy. I think Thomas might talk about this a little more when you get him on the show. But we also have stuff coming up for the iCast Fireball Patreon, maybe along some similar-ish lines. I'm pretty sure Thomas said that I could mention that during this interview. And If he didn't want me to, sorry, Thomas, I'm doing it anyway. (laughs) It's August, you know, it'll probably be out by then, right? Or maybe not. Maybe, we'll we'll see, we'll see. And currently we're hoping to have me be the GM in charge of that because Uh. Thomas has too many kids and a job to be able to do more campaigns (laughs) than one at a time. But yeah, we're really excited about it. We think it's going to be a lot of fun. That does sound fun. And because I am an iCast Fireball patron, I'll also get in on that. So that's nice. All right, Ned. Wrapping up here, what are some of your parting words of wisdom, encouragement, advice, etc. for aspiring DMs and GMs out there, and especially for those who want to improve their improv, you know, get better at flexing those muscles and being more comfortable with making stuff up and making it fun? I think for somebody who's starting out, if you're the kind of person who watches a lot of actual plays or listens to them, and you have like different GMs that you enjoy listening to, you enjoy their style, maybe kind of look at what you enjoy from each of those GMs. Because like I've kind of spanned the gamut, spanned the spectrum on the types of games that I've run. I have run the big epic Matt Mercer style campaign. I've run the super lighthearted, goofy Griffin McElroy style campaign from the Adventure Zone. And, you know, maybe you connect with Brennan Lee Mulligan from Dimension 20. Maybe you connect with Brian Murphy from Not Another D&D Podcast. Even then, recognizing that you don't have to be any one of those given people. It's okay to just be yourself as a GM and to find your own style that really works for you. And, you know, if you don't listen to a lot of other actual play shows, just think of the kind of stories that you like. Do you enjoy the gritty epicness of Lord of the Rings, or do you maybe lean towards a bit more of a lighthearted Thor Ragnarok, you know, Taika Waititi kind of like, it's still epic, but there's laughs involved in it. Yeah. But starting out, maybe lean a little bit more towards the lighter side of things instead of the heavy side of things, because you're probably just going to, you'll be more 
within that lighter kind of world, you'll be more able to make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes when you're starting out. You're going to make mistakes when you've been DMing for five years. I think the main thing that I want to give to you is you are more capable than you realize you are. You just haven't had the time to experiment and to realize how capable you are. So I think the main thing is getting into it. Maybe if something like Monster of the Week is less intimidating than Dungeons and Dragons 5e, start with that. But if you're ready to just jump into the deep end, then go for that as well. Just do what you feel passionate about, do what your friends are passionate about, and trust yourself. I love it. Lastly, where can people find you, find your shows that you're a part of, find your Patreon, when do the episodes drop, etc.? Tell us about that. So me, as an individual, I am incredibly inactive on social media. So don't try to find me, just try to find my show. Basically, everywhere across the social media, we're just at Improv Tabletop, nice and straightforward. We've got Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, maybe threads, maybe that's the new thing. We'll see if that ends up <laughs> Question mark. Question mark. By now it could be gone or it could be thriving. Who knows? Yeah, we shall see. But yeah, we're on all of those social media platforms. We're on all major podcatchers. You can just search Improv Tabletop. We'll be there improvtabletop.com. We have a listening guide on there. So if you look at our feed and you think there's a lot of stuff on here, where should I start? We have a breakdown of all the different campaigns we've done. And my personal recommendation, don't start at the beginning. Jurassic Bake Off, it was a fun campaign, but it was our first campaign and we didn't know what we were doing. So look through and maybe you'll see, oh, Transformers, I really like. Maybe I'll listen to that. Oh, Mistborn, I really like that. Maybe I'll listen to that campaign. Find the one that is most intriguing to you and just start with that one. They're all self-contained. You don't have to have listened to any of the other ones to get in and appreciate them. I guess the last thing I'll plug is we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash improv tabletop. We've mentioned a few times already. I am blown away like every day by the group of people we've gathered together in the improv tabletop Patreon making the show. We generally try to be people who are kind of a ray of sunshine, somebody who is a good-hearted person who's trying to do some good in the world. And I truly feel like the people that we have attracted to our Patreon are the same kind of people, just really great people to interact with. Absolutely love them. And you know, maybe you can be part of that too someday. Yeah. Like I said, I jumped on a few weeks ago and within a few weeks, already got myself into a one shot of Avatar Legends and, you know, been sharing memes and all sorts of fun stuff. So it's been a good time. And yeah, if anybody is considering it, then check it out, you know, find a little game to jump in on or enjoy the talkback episodes that you do. There's lots to offer. So awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Ned. It's been a ton of fun to listen to your show. I've loved all the different parts of it for a lot of different reasons, but it's been a pleasure all the way through. And I really appreciate you taking the time and being my season four first guest. AOAO! I'm glad to be here. It's been really cool getting to know you and to just chat about the RPG sphere. But me and Thomas, we talk a lot about podcasting, but mostly it's been like just the two of us. So it's nice to have somebody else who is really involved in the RPG creation podcast stuff to just bounce ideas off of. It's really cool. I'm not a, an actual play, but we are peers technically. I will yes. take it. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
Thank you so much for listening to How Not to DM Season 4 kickoff episode. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation with Ned as much as I did. I could really tell from talking to him and with talking to him in the past that he loves the improv side of tabletop things. And I think that if you give his show a chance, you can tell how much fun he has with it and how much fun his players have with it as well. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Grant, the Game Master from the show Game Master Monday. A lot of my life has been trial and error. Uh, this is no exception. I have played a lot of the things where my, my biggest oopsies are just like, oh, I didn't read that super great and I totally whiffed something. I, I don't think I've ever had like an experience where my players walked away being like, I wish he would have XYZ'd. It, it's mostly just me beating myself up because like, I read something after the fact. Like, I totally did not do that mechanic right and I didn't clue in until like halfway through the game. For more awesome advice from Grant who has run almost a dozen systems now for his podcast Game Master Monday, tune in next week. If you enjoyed this episode or if you've ever enjoyed any of my episodes, a great way to support How Not to DM is by leaving me a review either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, you can check out my Linktree, linktree.com slash hn2dm, or in the episode notes, as always, you can drop me a tip on PayPal or on Ko-fi, or you can buy something through my affiliate links, which will give me a percentage of the sale, thereby helping me keep running the show. I have an affiliate link with 1985 games. They sell a bunch of cool 2D terrain that you can carry around with you wherever you need to go, along with a bunch of other different kinds of game supplements. You could buy a t-shirt or a mug or a flag at gemmedfirefly.com. You could buy some new dice from Adventure Dice. They're a smaller dice maker based in Canada. Really good friends, and they have some awesome offerings. Coming up soon, they're going to be selling their Advent calendars, which are a big seller. Advent calendars for the holiday seasons for those geeks in your life who would love to open up and get a new dice for every day of the holiday that you plan on celebrating. That'll be 10% off at Adventure Dice. I love Adventure Dice. I've got a few of the sets myself. I get sets for my players every Christmas just because it's a fun thing to give and get as a geek. I also have links for Hero Forge where you can build your own 3D printable characters. You can buy them pre-painted or you can buy them unpainted. You can also buy the STFL files and print them yourself. Also, I've got links to DMs Guild and DriveThru if you're planning on buying any new games or modules or anything like that in the coming future. So those are a few ways you can support me. Check those out again in my link tree and you can find that in my episode notes or at linktree.com slash hn the number two DM. That was a lot, but I appreciate you for listening through it, and you all know the drill by now. Thanks for listening to the Season 4 kickoff episode, and until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.